Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Your Booked, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm Daisy Buchanan, your host and the author of The Sisterhood, a love letter to the women who shaped me. If you're on the Kent coast, come and buy it from the Margate Bookshop, my lovely local. This week, our guest is the author, director and global traveller Richard Iowadi. He's written his third book about film, and this time it's about one very specific film. Ayoadi on Top is his detailed exploration of View from the Top, the 2003 dramedy, Ayoadi's description, starring Gwyneth Paltrow as a blue-collar wannabe air hostess who wishes to move up in the world, figuratively and literally. We went to one of the most bookish basements in the world, the Faber office, where we are assured that Richard lives, and we talked about rom-com tropes, the work of Dostoevsky, Scorsese, Woodhouse and Adam Sandler. I did want to ask you is given the nature of your fabulous book and the film what is your favourite plane entertainment do you read in transit um, yes I guess reading would be the main thing yeah I can't watch um, films on planes because of the sound and being bad and I don't like it not being in the right ratio ah. because um, yeah so reading it's the best thing for me. Um, Movies of the mind. <laughs> I suppose, yes. Um, what do you do on planes? Do you watch films? Um, I do a bit of a mix. Okay. Um, also, I find that on planes, I don't know what it is, but my sense of quality control goes. And right. I can see things and think, that was great! <laughs> and then I come away and sort of revisit it and find myself disappointed. There is meant to be a sort of uh, a romantic comedy phenomenon on planes that people suddenly find themselves weeping. I mean, it's the altitude, the tomato juice. <laughs> it's hard to know. Definitely not what I'm putting in the tomato juice. Okay. It's all the anti-carcinogens. What do you like to read? Do you, do you buy books at the airport or do you um, plan it? Um, no, I'd have a variety of books um, at different levels of difficulty depending on how tired and unfocused I am, which generally is very unfocused and very tired. So it'll range from... Well, well what would the easiest thing would be pr- probably non-fiction and then different gradations of non-fiction, then fiction that is, I guess, what P.G. Woodhouse would call a breakfast book. Ah! Um, and then a slightly harder level of fiction and then the book that I would like to read but I know I'm definitely not going to read on the plane because I won't be able to concentrate. But you were almost having a, a sort of a book wardrobe in your bag to, you know, you know, yeah. feel comforted knowing the options there. There always has to be more books than it is possible to read with me. And I heard you on um, a podcast with Adam Buxton a few years ago talking about not being the happiest or most enthusiastic flyer or right. traveller. Am I right to yeah. infer that? Well, there are so many things about flying that... Uh, uh, and not so pleasant. It's unnatural, isn't it? It's entirely it's, unnatural. Yes, it's not right. Um, producer in, Dale hates flying. Right. Well, producer Dale is right too. <laughs> um, it's safer to be next to a nuclear reactor than to be in a plane. Oh my God, don't tell him this. We will never go on holiday again. Well, you know, there's trains. <laughs> and also, 
here England's pretty good for holidays. It's pretty good. It's pretty the good. Environment is a very important thing to take into yeah, consideration. Scotland, Wales. And, um, I know I'm in glass houses with at this. At the time of recording, it might become impossible to leave the country anyway. It could be, yeah, it could be Mad Max times. So, can you remember the first book that you read on a plane where you were just fully Ooh. immersed, you forgot where you were, you're happy and relaxed? Any favourite well, I can strike plane out books? the last two. <laughs> well, the first book that I didn't fly until relatively late in life, so m- not really till my 20s did I. I didn't go on holiday until um, our honeymoon. Not, you know, for the listener, not <laughs> you and our honeymoon. Polyamorous That would not be right, the, my wife and uh, our honeymoon. Um, I remember reading um, Moby Dick when I went um, to Colorado for a for a comedy festival, and so I thought I want to read a archetypically American novel in America because I hadn't been to America before. So I read Moby Dick, and that was really great. Did you come in with any expectations of Moby Dick beyond you know this is the classic book, or did it did any of it surprise you or infuriate you? I'd heard there's a lot of whale stuff, <laughs> and that had been uh, said to me. I was surprised at how brilliant the whale stuff is. I mean, it, the whiteness of the whale, the chapter on the whiteness of the whale is just extraordinary. And very often I find with something that feels like it's going to be difficult or weighty, I approach it like a frightened foal at a large fence, and just this is going to drain me, I can't do it, I I lack the um, concentration and intellect to tackle this. And it always is so much easier than reading something that you feel will be easy to read. Or when I say you, I mean me. Um, So quite often I read something because I think, oh, this won't be hard or I'm tired or I, I just can't cope with something voluminous. But I'm always wrong about it. So say, reading The Brothers Karamazov, which I thought, I can't read The mm. Brothers Karamazov, that's impossible, that's like doing trigonometry. It's great, it's just great. And you go, oh, they really, there's a reason this book has stayed around. I haven't read it, I think, because I'm frightened for the reasons you yes. say. So what, how do you get over that psychological block of bloody hell, this book is enormous? It's a strange um, thing, because maybe classical music has a similar thing, or anything that becomes canonised as as something that's important and needs to be treated respectfully. But, okay, let's take an example of something that's small and, and say, John Steinbeck, say, like, The Red Pony, read recently, or The Pearl. This is a weighty writer, and on the other end of the scale of length, Grapes of Wrath and East of Eden, which are big. But it's the same storyteller, it's the same... A mode of address in a certain way, although obviously each book is different. But that same ability to absolutely get you in Of Mice and Men is in the longer books. And they're not... A, a, a lot of the reason sometimes why the books, some of those books are long, is because they do sustain. Now, there are books where you go, I just am not so sure that I can ever start this, like War and Peace or... Proust, you just feel this is just too big. But I imagine they're good. I haven't read War and Peace. I've heard it's good. I bet it will be good. <laughs> but also you sort of feel that you need to... Stephen King says that you need to learn how to read in gulps, big gulps, as well as uh, tiny sips. And I think with a big book, you go, sipping is not going to There's something be about momentum, isn't it? That the, yes. the point of this book is they really wanted you to be carried forward by it as much yes. as anything. You know, like, I'll have my ten pages. And do you, How do you find, in, in this modern world, in this crazy modern world, yeah. how does the way we live sort of alter your attention span, do you think? Is it, are you, are you, you strike me as someone who's always good at concentrating and focusing, but is it ever more challenging at some times than others? I'm pretty bad at concentrating, and I think for a while I just really stopped reading just because of how busy it felt things were, or I, I was often 
watching things or researching a project and I felt how I can't I if I'm reading I, it has to be to do with the research mm. of something or I, I need to justify it in a way and then I don't know maybe four or five years ago I I specifically tried to start reading with there being no underpinning justification for why I'm reading this book that it it's I'm not reading this for this to lead somewhere else and I've enjoyed that and but it is hard to re- read even in London it, just it being noisy yes it's hard and what just did you say sorry by the way do we can sit down oh yes we've, we've been on a treadmill for the first <laughs> uh, half hour of this um so and phones are deadly for reading I'd say um because they're designed to make you stay in a little loop of serotonin hits. And they're, they're bad news if you have a completist urge. Because there's no, it's bottomless, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's endless. Infinity itself. There's, mm. um, the journalist William Leith wrote a book, um, oddly, about um, the Atkins diet, but sort of as a, an emotional and sociological phenomenon in our you know, cultural eating habits. And... He talks about, you know, certain foods being an advertisement for themselves. And I suppose, like, you know, cigarettes are sort of the ultimate product or, you know, cocaine. You just, you know, keep the, the more you have, the more you want. And I think that's what phones do, isn't it? They're sort of activating that. They can't hold your gaze because there's always, but, but look over here, look at yes. this. And they have so many different functions. So I often find myself looking something up on my phone, like, say, how do I get to Russell Square and then before I know it I'm looking up oh here's an archive of unreleased Lou Reed demos <laughs> I go I don't even know how I got here I'm in Luton now it's just so it's such a strange um, path as a director sort of work with literature what is the the challenge of a story that is sort of reflective but not scene for scene frame for frame identical and how much kind of killing your darlings do you have to do in terms of parts of the books that you loved that don't necessarily make the film work I mean, I've made two films and even that sounds overly personal because it's you're in a collective making a film that have been adapted from books so the first one was adapted from a book by Joe Dunthorne called Submarine, and the second was adapted from a Dostoevsky novella um, called The Double, and that last project was something that um, a writer, Avi Kareen, had the idea to adapt, and he uh, wrote the first couple of drafts of the script before we started writing together. And, you know, I wrote a draft, and then we, then we came together and, and worked did on you it. know the story before, or did you sort of come to it? Um, no, I didn't. I think I read his draft before I read the book, and the book is very, um, well, it's in his first period of writing before he went to the work camps, he wrote Poor Folk, which was a big hit, um, the double not so much, um, and it's very idiosyncratic, or I guess some people would say it's, quite Kafka-like before, mm. even though it's well before Kafka yeah. and Gogol-like, in that the story is about someone who, a lowly office clerk who encounters their doppelganger, um, but no one notices. And that seems to be the, the brilliant genius of that particular story, that no one would care mm. that someone looks exactly like you. And the film isn't set in the same setting, it's not set in Russia, it's not a period piece... There are quite a lot of changes. Often, I suppose, the book is, as well as outlining incident, you have the opportunity to go into characters' thoughts, as you say. Um, in f- films, you can go into characters' thoughts. There's voiceover, but that, that often feels like comment rather than real-time thinking, I suppose. I don't know that film's very good at sort of discursive consideration of a moment it's very good at seeing people make decisions and it's very good at seeing people conflicted between two Mm. decisions Um, and in that sense it can do things 
I think, better than books. For example, in a film you have the opportunity of really seeing someone fast and getting quite a lot of information about them from various senses at the, at the same time, sort of with music, with um, the facial expression, with costuming, with lighting, with sets, with camera movement. It, it, it's very stacked, whereas a book can't stack information mm. that same way. But what it lacks for that, it can take time. Time works differently in books. It's simple, I guess, is what a character looks like. It's yeah. so ambiguous, isn't it, in your yes. head? And yeah. I think that there are lots of writers who don't want you to, you know, they want you to sort of to finish that mm. illustration yourself, whereas it's the first thing you know yes. in casting. Yeah. And, and that's that, why I think, say, lots of Dickens books don't seem to lose as much in translation in a certain way because they are so descriptive. I think Joe Dunthorne was talking to me about this, um, saying that when literature becomes a great deal to do with voice, mm. and it has become to do with voice a lot, that makes it hard. Yeah. But then I remember reading something that Stanley Kubrick said, which is that if you know what a character's thinking and you have that roadmap, mm. then you can try and think of exterior signs that will illustrate that mm. thinking. And so... Like, it can um, be like having a backstory. Gwyneth Paltrow watching um, yes. the the most famous air hostess in all the world and thinking some thoughts and then saying, I will! <laughs> yes, I mean, that's a very good example. Well, there's a scene in View from the Top. Gwyneth Paltrow, who plays someone who's blue-collar, so already we're in, I guess, a kind of sci-fi world. She <laughs> uh, decides that she wants to become an air stewardess um, because... She is down on her luck in a bar, having just been dumped by Tommy Boulay, the high school quarterback, who seems to, presumably as a high school quarterback, he's meant to be 18, I guess, as a... They leave school at 18, but she's clearly in her 30s. It's baffling. Also, for, um, as a kind of... For the, the Sex and the City fans, which I know are listening, and I am one, and you think sure. that being dumped by a post-it note is the worst thing ever. To right. do a massive spoiler, dumped by birthday card. Yes, dumped by birthday card. Um, because they don't make breaking up cards, that's the line. But that doesn't follow. I mean, just because they don't make breaking up cards, that doesn't mean you have to you put it in a birthday a card. card. <laughs> I mean, it's it's literally, it's a false equivalent. I remember this moment. I will keep this in its envelope in a special box. Yes. And I'm not sure that they don't make breaking up cards. Anyway, so... I perhaps in... Cause when, so it was... I haven't been into paper chase recently. I don't know when it... Do you think it was maybe... Would it have been made in the late 90s if it was originally slated for a 2001 release? It, I've done my homework, Richard. Yes, it was slated for a, a Christmas 2001 release. I don't think they would have spent an awful lot of time in post-production. <laughs> um, I almost think if it was going to be released in the, the end of 2001, they may well have started making it in 2001, <laughs> or maybe at the very end of 2000. I mean, nothing like a deadline. <laughs> sure, it, it does focus creativity. Uh, so she's down on her luck in this bar, um, and she sees on the TV an interview with Sally Weston, played by Candice Bergen, who is t- talking about her book, My Life in the Sky, how she ascended to the top of guru world. I don't quite understand why, having been an air stewardess. Now, what seems strange about this is it seems a very... Do you know any famous air stewardesses out of interest? I was racking my brains. Um, Only um, the closest I came was, you know, the the ones in airplane. But, you know, pretend air stewardess. They don't count in this. It's not to in any way denigrate the profession, but... It, it just seems a, a strange thing to to say that this will be a route to millionaire status because you can't become a millionaire specifically doing that. Now you could be kind of an air influencer, couldn't you? That didn't exist, I think, at the time of writing or filming. But that, that is possible. This is possible. We're possibly theoretically entering the era of the famous air stewardess. But if that's a career, it's it's, it's an idea. Yes. But in a way, in order to be an influencer, it seems much better to already be a millionaire. That seems to be one of the prerequisites Mm. of being an influencer, is having the time to bother to influence other people rather than needing to get a job in order to live, which is what everyone does. 
um, other than heiresses, which in a way, in some senses, maybe Gwyneth Paltrow is in the realm of that kind of um, debutante. But a, self, <laughs> a self-attested kind of feminist message of the film is leaving this small town, becoming an air stewardess, living your own life. But the reason Sally Weston became rich is that she met a millionaire on a plane and married him. But, which is fine, you know, I mean, but it's not... I, I just don't see, narratively, how that's a book. Um, and it doesn't seem like something that you can achieve through um, effort and, and something that is to do with a particular endeavour. Chapter one, playful giggling. Chapter two, slipping a little bit of extra whiskey in the cup. <laughs> yes, it's... Um, well, in the, in the f- film, the way she won his heart is by giving him a lot of salty peanuts. <laughs> that, that's not even so, I'm not even making that up and then made his heart pretty much useless with all the fat and salt that it had to yes. work through the system and also at altitude it's a, <laughs> a dangerous combination so and the tension of course in the film is that Gwyneth Paltrow's character Donna Jensen is already romantically involved with Ted Stewart played by Mark Ruffalo who although he is training to be a hotshot lawyer isn't a millionaire. So how's it going to work? How's this plan of her becoming incredibly rich going to work through going into the service industry? I'm just saying there are flaws in this film. I wish I had. And I I, I think there's a sense in which they may be being disingenuous about the possibility of becoming truly exceptional. No, is it about welfare or is it about escape? And is the message perhaps you can never escape yourself, no matter what altitudinous point you're at? Well, I think it sells a kind of ridiculous lie of exception, of, of being exceptional, which, in a sense, at the heart of the romantic comedy for a long time has been this tension between work and relationships. So the general story is... Let's meet this person. They work really hard. They work too hard. They don't make time for family. Look, it's your son's piano recital. I can't make the piano recital. I've got to get these reports in. But Bobby's been practising for weeks. I know he's been practising for weeks. But my boss is on my back. If I don't get this report in by Monday, I'm going to get fired. And then generally, um, spouse says, well, if you're not there... It's over. Rain, montage, various things, sadness, staying up late, doing reports. Um, At some point, the person doing all of the reports says, you know what, I've had enough of this. I'm going to leave this job and I'm going to uh, walk out of the office in a high-profile way, preferably (laughs) um, witnessed by lots of people who maybe will stand on desks and applaud me. Yes. Great in the then run, run to the piano recital. They make it just in time. It's a big run. Plane. There's no plane. I, I, I'll sell you my ticket. How much do you want for the There's ticket? Uh, £2,000 for the ticket. But that's so much for a ticket. Who cares? I've got to get there. Plane. The plane's delayed. OK, well, get on the coach. But <laughs> I spent all the money on the ticket. doesn't matter. Get on the coach. I'm holding a chicken for some reason on the coach. The coach is going... The coach breaks down. I've got to get... Uh, and okay. the driver of the coach no. will probably say, it's for love, no it's, charge. It's, it's OK. I have a Harley-Davidson motorbike parked <laughs> by this tree. You can use it. I've never been on a Harley Davidson. Well, go now. He's about to start the piano playing. On the that breaks down. Run into the place. Makes it. On the way though, he's had an amazing idea about how to do the report. So, the idea is that you 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 sacrifice your work for your family, but then your work goes even better. The, there's no sense that you can in the romantic comedy dream that you give up anything. You do well in the work, you get everything that comes from that, and then you realise, oh, it does, doesn't do everything. So then you go into the relationship, but guess what? You get even more work. And that, I feel, is um, really terrible <laughs> as a message <laughs> because relationships and family do require an awful lot of sacrifice, and I think it does mean you may not work as much. And I think that's really borne out, ironically, by people in the film industry who generally find it very hard to sustain relationships. 
And so you feel that you're being t uh, told in a film how important relationships are by people who are spending 14 hours a day on a set. Do you think that they're sort of, well, obviously, you know, that people want a love story, and then, but, but for, you know, me and my buddies, we don't want less, but we want more work. We want to know there's always going to be work, so it's got to have the audience and industry payoff. But I think it's buying into um, as uh, absolute craziness because there's a sort of sense. This is what it does that I think is bad. And um, unlike most traditional stories or, or any story that is good or would stay with you, is that everything costs or everything has some form of pain mm. to it or something that is real. And um, you know, Brothers Karamazov is really about collective guilt. It doesn't mm. say, well, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> You've admitted what you did. Now you're going to get the Yamamoto file. But the, the thing that I find that's very sort of ultimately depressing about the uh, romantic comedy is that it makes it results-based rather than um, process-based. Mm. So in a way, what you want in, to do is behaving in this way or trying to do this type of thing or being open to this mode of being is important. What happens is not in my control. I'm more for a kind of book of Job approach to the romantic comedy, where you go, it seems like everything he did was pretty good. It didn't seem to stop him guessing all these ulcers. <laughs> um, I just sort of like to see that film where she becomes an air stewardess her relationship doesn't work out. Mm. She's just stuck being an air stewardess. And she realises that it was a completely silly idea to view this as some kind of escape, that you can't really escape from what you are. But that isn't what the film is at all. It's, um, it's a very strange kind of wish fulfilment. Everyone is exceptional, which obviously isn't One true. One cancels the other. Well, it isn't true in the in the film's own sense of mm. itself, in that it doesn't think everyone is exceptional. It just views the two heroes as being exceptional and everyone else basically being a bit more rubbish than them. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We'll be back to Richard soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, a bit of literary luminescence that is worth so much that you'd be lucky to win it in a Euro Millions triple rollover. This week, it's a book I've come embarrassingly late to, American Wife by Curtis Sittenfeld. One of the loveliest and luckiest aspects of making this podcast is that I get sent, on average, about 20 or 30 books a week. If I allow myself to get behind on my work, leave some bills unpaid and spend no time at all with producer Dale, I might be able to read three books a week. 
When one is surrounded by hundreds and thousands of books that are coming out in 2020, it is very hard to make time for a book that was published in 2008, but I am so glad I did. It's Sittenfeld's fictionalised imagining of the life of Laura Bush as a character named Alice Blackwell, and it's considered compelling, compassionate and really astonishingly vivid. The thing I love the most about Sittenfeld's novels is that she draws the real world so expertly and with such nuance. And this is the best one of her novels that I've read, and probably one of the best novels I have ever read. American Wife by Curtis Sittenfeld is published by Black Swan, and it's out now. Now, back to Richard. I wanted to ask whether you had, sort of to go away from um, a view from the top for a second, I'll come back, I promise. Um, Did you have a Donna moment? Did you ever see someone on TV... Right. Doing something that made you think... Being dumped by the high school quarterback. <laughs> Sad break-up birthday card. But any, you know, sort of comedian or, or performer where you thought, I didn't know that that was something that a person could do and I'd quite like to do that. Yes. Um, I don't think so, despite it being so emotionally resonant in the film. I remember hearing records and thinking, oh, I want to be in a band but in terms of what I'm doing now this was not the plan at all. What were the records that? One of them was well it's a record I think that everyone had to be banned from playing those chords in guitar shops is uh, Nevermind also The Jesus and Mary Jane and Dinosaur Jr and just that era of things The Pixies Um, but no I never... most of what I'm doing now feels like a clerical error. Is that thrilling? No, I mean, it doesn't feel like a career either. It just feels like, um, I don't know what it feels like. Um, Mainly, I suppose, a great deal of what I've done, I suppose, has come out of writing. So maybe that's um, a through line. And then there is a, a, a thing that feels relatively modern, which I guess you could term the appearance. And I'm not quite sure what that is. Um, that very often, and I, I found this with people who I know who write or who maybe make music, is that partly the reason they do that is because they don't feel that they can speak very readily or or easily. And so I remember Michael Haneker saying this, that writing... Or, or making things as an apology for not quite being there. So a lot of people are able to interact seemingly uh, well or are able to be more present. And th- there are some people who seem like they aren't quite present, there's something not quite gelling with them, and th- those people seem to need to go away and think a bit about it and and offer sometimes a slightly paltry thing is maybe if you look at this that might be better than listening to me. I wonder if there's an element as well of writing and perhaps I'd sort of venture to say directing but please shout at me if you don't feel that's true you're always you've got to look and see and observe and Mm -hmm. it's a bit much to ask you as a writer to sort of to be in a room contributing when you're always sort of looking for things to see well, there is a sense of being outside of things which isn't just good and it can mean that you are absent and that can be unpleasant for to be around for people. But I suppose maybe it shows that things that often feel you wouldn't wish to have can be useful sounds too along the lines of a kind of utility but that something meaningful can come out of things that you might not ordinarily want. I always think of, say, Martin Scorsese, who would say, you would not wish for your child to have such bad asthma that they cannot leave the house, seemingly. Mm. But out of that came this obsession with drawing and films and staying in his head in a certain way. And, you know, I, for one, have really benefited from his Mm. terrible inability to go out of the room because he had (laughs) asthma, because the lens through which he's seen stuff I've felt incredibly grateful for. Now, if I were his parents, I'd feel bad for my son 
in that sense. So, um, and I'm not saying that I'm doing something that is of use to people or in that kind of way. That's like an extreme example of someone who's obviously uh, looking at things in a very interesting way. I'm not going to argue that. In the work that you do is, you know, it's profound and moving and joyful. And the more I live in the world, the more I think joy is the one thing that's sort of in short supply. Anyone who's bringing anyone any amount of joy is that's a well. It's hard to say. Well, I tell you, you know, Sullivan's Travels is a great film about that. Yes, Um, you, you know, that's such a brilliant illustration of someone doing what they should really what they have a gift for rather than what they think is worthy and important. And recently, um, about a year or two ago, maybe two years, I really started reading P.G. Woodhouse, which I just not... I don't know for whatever reason I just hadn't read or wanted to, which is just pure joy and just so... such a, an amazing world to be in and to... Do you favour Jeeves and Worcester or the Blandings books or...? It's a good... I have a weakness for Uckridge. I do like him. He's such a brilliantly... He's always out of money and always trying to touch people for a fiver. And there's something slightly... Does, I think he is always trying to live with his aunt in Wimbledon and it's always been kicked out. There's something very appealing about him. But it's hard to beat Jeeves and Worcester for just how brilliantly written they are. I mean, the Blandings books are great too. For someone who's as focused on joy as he is and as delightful as he is, there there is a sort of shadow sadness in it, I feel, in that there's no parents. He has no parents. Mm. Where are they? They're never mentioned. There's, he is slightly on his own. I mean, I love how terrified he is of being married (laughs) there's something just very funny about that and I it feels that he really influenced those films in the 20s and 30s of Sturgis and Lubitsch when you see all those butlers show up you feel they must have loved Woodhouse I suppose there's perhaps a tiny bit of sort of Jobish futility to to Bertie Wooster as well a Peter Um, Pan quality as well, that he doesn't grow up and just... And he's, it's just, it's so kind of, you know, cyclical and sort of no matter what he, you know, whether he... And he's, all, he's very, even though he sort of, he infuriates people, but he is so fundamentally kind-hearted. And he yeah. is, in his own, always trying to do the right thing. And it's, yeah. you know, it's the opposite of um, a view from the top in lots of yeah. ways because there are no rewards. Well, there's a bit in one of the books, I can't remember which one it is, where he does an inventory of good things that have happened and bad things that have happened and in the uh, good uh, column is well here I am what and that to me is when I read it I just found that one of the funniest things I've ever read (laughs) but that is just just being there is Mm. his greatest achievement and he's materially very well off but I think that is partially what allows it to be so funny the the lack of consequence, mm. the, how insignificant this cow creamer is in, you know, <laughs> how insignificant it is that he has to give this speech at the girls' school, how insignificant these tasks are, but they are very important. And he can't, um, he can't prioritise <laughs> between two demands. He cannot serve two masters and he just wants to be left alone in a certain way. And... I, I feel one of the other things that does it really well is my dinner with Andre, mm. because what makes it comic is the fact that they're in this fancy restaurant and this world is going on outside and where there's poverty and struggle and crime. and But in here, they're in this sort of bubble. And I think, in a sense, well, everyone's in their own bubble of consciousness and what they think is important or not. And I think what you say is so right that he doesn't get... He's never better off at the start. He never... He doesn't win anything. Mm. And he doesn't learn anything at all. He's never learnt anything in his life. (laughs) The only thing... He's got the scripture prize, which he had when he was young, which he clearly cheated on. (laughs) And that, I think, is what 
is funny about stuff, characters whose aims either just never materialise or or that they just have really low expectations. And I think it's the aspirational aspects of romantic comedies that makes them so deeply depressing and and so patronising. You're being reassured but also exhorted to be that little bit shinier and better than you currently are. Whereas P.G. Woodhouse is not recommending this as a way of life, I don't feel. He's not saying, look at, learn from Bertie. Are there any books, Woodhouse or otherwise, that you would like to sort of to make into honest romantic comedies or funny or truthful romantic comedies? Well, it's been a while since I feel there's been a really truthful romantic comedy. Here's the other thing. There's something I feel about, say, this film, which is patronising to being an air stewardess, because there's a sense of, you know, I got to fly Paris First Class International and it wasn't everything. Now, I don't think that you could make that same film if she was a brain surgeon. There's something about some of these professions, and very often it's like, they're a toy designer, or they they, they plan and fun amusement parks there's something about saying oh what you're doing that's not worth giving everything to or it's not really worth concentrating there's a sort of lack of weight is it I'd love to he's got a list of approved jobs for men and women okay. in romantic comedies oh and right men are um, more often than not architects very yes. popular job for a romantic yes, man I think in Click the Adam Sandler film in which he gets a magic remote control. He's an architect in that, um, and David Hasselhoff is his boss, and he does miss the swim meet because David Hasselhoff says, look, these nondescript Japanese businessmen for some reason really want this. It's kind of ironic report. that the Hoff makes him miss a swim meet. Exactly, yes. It's, it's nothing if not metatextual. <laughs> so... Yes, architect is a good one, but I, I would like to see a scene where someone is performing brain surgery on a child and then they get a call saying, look, you're missing <laughs> the fun run. <laughs> and they put down the scalpel and they go, you know what? I'm not going to finish this operation. I've got to be there for my son. And if this guy gets brain damage, so be it. There's always the sense of... Well, you can leave this profession. It doesn't matter. Someone's getting stitches and they're sewing the they words lol into the skin. They've half done it and they go, you know what? You finish the stitching. <laughs> it's like there's a sense of, oh, no, what you're doing isn't important. What we're doing is important. We're filmmakers. We're going to finish this film. I'd like to have seen them walk off that film before it was finished to be with their own children. Um, but they didn't walk off the film because they had to finish the film to tell us that we should walk away from what we're doing to be with our families so that we can not make enough money to go to the cinema to see the film. So the ultimate romantic comedy that really, for want of a better expression, put its money where its mouth is, is the unfinished one. It's the one that's 40 minutes long and then there's just mad B-roll. Or the romantic comedy... It's, it just feels so in the service industry. It's like, there's, mm. it's going to be some laughs. Don't worry. I know you're tired. This isn't going to tax you. And it actually ends up being more depleting in a certain way. You feel diminished. Whereas The Apartment, which deals with really big things mm. and um, sad things, not a spoiler alert, you know, attempted suicide, yeah. really bleak infidelity. It's not really consummated. Mm. It, it feels very real and and also stemmed from, I think it stemmed from Billy Wilder saying that watching Brief Encounter and going, I wonder what the person whose flat this is feels, the person where they're meeting, like he has to get out of the flat, what's he doing? And it just feels much more real about d- delusion and the sacrifice and the difficulty of seeing what people are, rather than, you're basically great. It's just slightly reorder the priorities at the end of the second act, and then it'll be even better. It's absolutely all circumstances. No one ever has to confront themselves. Not really. It's a sense of, I'm special enough, and ultimately the world will work for me if I will it to. And it feels patronising. I spoke, Elaine May, who I think, you know, is a brilliant Mm. writer of comedies, she was uh, talking to Mike Nichols, and... One of the things she said that she felt was wrong 
was not allowing herself to admit that she was as rotten as anyone else. And that being the, a true feminist statement, that in a way, if you don't allow the full terribleness of a person, it's almost like you're not trusting them to be a, a full human. Mm. And that's incredibly patronising. And so I think now uh, writing is being more um, honest about everyone's capacity to be terrible. I think that's far more interesting and mm. also is going to be far more funny. I remember a thing Spike Lee said, which is that even if you are the top basketball player in the NBA, it still doesn't mean that you're maybe not being exploited. So mm. I, I think you can be ostensibly wealthy, rich, admired, doing something that is very hard, that is a choice, and you can still be exploited. Well, it brings us back to Sullivan's Travels, kind of, doesn't it? The thing, you know, that you're... What do you want to do? What are you good at? Are those things different? What mm. are you doing to bring you joy and satisfaction? What brings yeah. other people satisfaction? Yes, I think in a way it's it's always in a, a margin of where you're not quite in control, where interesting things happen. And I, I don't know that anything good has ever occurred from someone wanting to deliver a message in, well, in terms of something that's writing. You can always tell if someone has is is approaching something didactically. Mm. My My sense is that people like an area and through their joy and enthusiasm and energy in wanting to go into an area despite themselves reveal something else or they might want to say something about this but really it ends up being about this mm. or as you say that place where it becomes unpredictable or something you can't control that can yeah. often be where the most interesting and exciting I think so. ideas emerge yeah and and also the fact that things can be so completely misinterpreted and mm. I, I imagine with most people's favourite books, they there are many different ways in which they're enjoying them, and many of the ways were ones that the author didn't intend mm. or, um, or couldn't have directly said, well, this is going to do that. You know, reading Moby Dick, but I'm a massive whale fan and I just love whales even yeah. more. Whales are great. But that's such a great example of something being incredibly specific and universal mm. at the same time, mm. and that seems to be often the case like why would I ostensibly from my background have any interest in the Edwardian upper class mm. or really it's all the source in New York upper west side public school what do they call private schools there prep schools and yes why I... why would I go this I've why would I identify so strongly with this character? If you're not sick of talking about it, I would love to talk to you about Catcher in the Rye. Sure, no, I don't Because um, I was thinking about, you know, that no one is allowed to make a film of it. Yes. And whether, how far you could make a film of it without explicitly saying that's what you're doing. I thought we've got Golden well, Hallfield. Well, The Graduate, I think, is not bad, even though, of, of course, it's based on the Charles Webb book. But it has similar themes, I think, mm. of... You could substitute the word plastic in that film for the word phony yeah. in a certain way. That sense of, well, what do you do? What does the generation above want from you? What mm. are they pushing you into? And are you really able to escape it? I also, and it's completely not like that film in a way, I often think of the film Persona as being of a similar theme, oh. which is... It's the idea that you can, with retreats, you can't ever retreat. The world will just keep coming mm. at you. It, it's like water, it'll just keep dripping in. So you can't get away from it. And so his desire to be the catcher in the rye, he can't. He has a sister. He can't, he can't stay in childhood. He can't, even though he's incredibly traumatised by the death, death of his brother, he, he's going to have to be his own thing. He can't just be a custodian of prelapsarian idol. He can't... And you almost don't get to decide when you stop being a child and start being an adult. And no. the, even, you know, the people who love you and want to protect you, they can't decide that for you either. It's exactly. going to happen. And the thing, you know, most people would say, well, is this true? A, a lot of the most meaningful things in people's lives have come through things you would never want to have happen. Asthma that makes you housebound. Yes, or 
death. <laughs> you know, death of people you know. One. You know, that people you know will die. That This is not the worst thing. Or illness. Uh, I guess asthma is an illness. Or loneliness or all sorts of we things. Can come back to this, but just as an attempt for me, this is the book inspector to stay on topic, which I've not been very good at with yeah, this conversation. Um, can you think, are there any um, deaths in novels or, that have really, things that have sort of upset you oh, profoundly or sort of bothered you yeah, the most? The death in R- Rabbit Run is just, I mean really upsetting and so surprising that's Updike yeah. right? I've been up a long time since I've yeah. read the rabbit books gosh um, there's, there's a death in that that is just the death of a child which is just completely heartbreaking and just awful I do want to ask whether there were any like Catcher in the Rye any books you read Around that time, or in your yeah. sort of, you know, early adolescence or pre-adolescence, where you did have that moment of sort of, you know, shock and being really delighted by something and seized with something. Yes. Um, well, Grapes of Wrath um, was one of those books that I... It was the first book where I remember not being able to sleep and just having oh, to read wow. it through the night. Was that something that you sort of happened upon yourself? Was it a, a book that someone gave to you? Or I think maybe we were doing Of Mice and Men at school ah. and then I just really liked it and just thought, I want to read more of this person. I, I, maybe it's a particular thing of adolescence that there's something about that American literature of that period that's so direct and you just feel like you're being told something by someone and it was so different to what I'd read before. It just felt... So adult. Sometimes a lot of the books that we're encouraged or encouraged to read at school, you know, we have to read it till we won't pass the exams. Everything can feel a little bit sort of superfluous. And then to read these where there's real economy. And like, oh, there are books where they only say what absolutely needs to be said. That's good. That's what yeah. the writers know what they're on about. Yeah, well, but also my experience of all the books that were set at school were I really liked them. <laughs> We did King Lear. It's amazing. <laughs> to this day, it's my favourite play, and I think about it so often, and just... It was just terrific. Wuthering Heights we had to do. I loved Wuthering Heights. We had to do Richard III. Richard III was great. We had to do The Bell Jar. I loved The Bell... Like, everything we did, we had to do... What else did we have? We had uh, a Chiris Murdoch book. Was it? It was under. It wasn't under the net. It'll come back to me. What were the other books? We did the Wasteland. Go, that really was great. great um, that was great. Um, I'm trying to think. There was one Paris other. Murdoch. Quite, I'm. You know. I bow down to the, the teacher who. Everything thinks. Was great. Well, I had um, such a good English teacher. He was just amazing. Because because sometimes I think that you are you react one of two ways, don't you, to that sort of the being forced to read something. Do you recommend many books to people? I th- it depends what their sales resistance is, because there can be something oppressive about being given a book, yeah. or you go, I can't, I can't even read the stuff I'm currently failing to read in my lifetime. But yes, I'm sometimes... What was the last book? The last book I sort of gave to lots of people was maybe Wally Shawn's book of essays, which uh-huh. I think I... Uh, are really good. I don't think I know oh, that yes. bit. What sort of what are the essays like? Well, he's just so good. They're just he does a really good thing about maybe connected to this, which is a class that he terms the unobtrusives. That when people when you go into restaurants, it's almost like they're people who are meant to bring food and do things, but not announce their presence mm. and. N- what a strange thing this is and how uncomfortable it is and this sort of secret world of service that is being done to make our lives easier but is a transaction and in some ways is dehumanising and he's just brilliant on that. He's, he's really good on not letting himself off the hook for 
what he does and consumes in life. But it's not pompous. He's not saying, I'm living this humble life. He'll, he's going, I'm bourgeois. <laughs> I eat in restaurants. I do these things. I am comfortable. But there's this war going on. And what am I doing about it? You know, it's, he's just brilliant at that tumult without saying, this is what I'm doing to help. And maybe you ought to think about trying to be halfway as good as me. I have an increasing appetite for that when it does feel as though the internet is just full of screaming, this is what I think, and it's right, and you're all wrong, and you're all idiots. And someone's saying, no, I'm I'm very, very flawed, and I do things that I know to be wrong or imperfect or inconsistent, but that's being a human. Yeah, definitely, and that's... And I feel, you know, when you read something, you, you want... Certainly in fiction, you want the idea that all the characters are being argued for, Mm. that there's no um, ciphers and that there's no obvious villains. Are there any books that you've reread and changed your mind about and sort of you felt quite like, you know, these are the good guys, these are the bad guys, and then come back and thought, oh, actually? Maybe Nostromo. um, My wife... uh, I always find this because I can say Lydia, but then it sounds like I'm just talking about uh, my wife Lydia. She she loves Nostromo, and so I found it really difficult to read uh, when I first read it. The first 150 pages, I just can't even follow this. And then I started again. And I do think when it's books, you know, someone you really really love, and you're exchanging, yeah. but there's extra pressure, isn't there? It's not yeah. just you know a casual pal, and you can yes. say, "I'll get round to it." So that was the, it. Was that was more just. Um, it managed to stop being difficult for whatever reason. I think, well, an example of not changing my opinion, it wasn't I thought it was good and then I thought it was bad or vice versa, but when I reread The Catcher in the Rye recently and I've read it a number of times over the years, as I get older, the more sympathy I have for the adults mm. in it. And when I first read it, I just went, he is great how he sees the world that he's forensically dismantling the bogus self-importance and smugness of adults and now more I I feel for the adults trying to connect to him not being able to wanting him not to do this and going you but but they don't know how to get him to be enthusiastic because they're running a syllabus and they're running in a school and they can't how can they help it and they they might not know everything that's happened and I feel more for them so maybe books uh, deepen as you read them or maybe rather than you having a completely different view possibly and I suppose you know characters are people not people that exist in the world but they do exist in our imaginations and you know as our relationship with people changes and we you know like different things about people at different times yes I do think your difference you bring your difference mm. to the book each time and that's the one of the sort of the sad and necessary things I think about adulthood is realizing that a certain amount of phoniness is maybe the necessary gravy to kind of to wash things if you commit to being like completely authentic and uncompromising the whole time you'll probably be punched in the face before lunch well i mean in that book he has a breakdown and it is a kind of um yeah how do you deal with uh inevitably being flawed and everyone else being flawed how how do you how do you navigate that that's very difficult um and every everything's particular that as i get older the more i feel a sense of suspicion over principles. Mm. It, it, when I was young, it seemed that it was great to be highly principled, mm. a highly principled person. But often that feels that's a very inflexible person, yeah. a dogmatic person, a person who's unable to be wrong, and that someone more interested in particularity and changing and saying, oh, this was wrong, or I didn't get that right, or what do you think? Or That seems more interesting. Um, on a very frivolous note, I would like to ask you, did you ever end up having a meal to Happy Eater? Yes. Um, this is, um, if you've not yet read listeners to your book, um, IORD on top. This is pertinent and you must read it and you'll enjoy it very much for this detail and many more. Well, there was a moment, I lived uh, near Ipswich and there was an 
on the A12, there was a happy eater. It was on the, the road back to our uh, house off the roundabout. And I just really wanted to eat there. I begged my parents. and They, they had no eating out of the house policy. And it sounds like it was quite near it was, your house. It was really near our house, but they just went, there's no reason to go to a restaurant. We have food in the house. Why would you go outside? There's no, it just makes no sense. It's more expensive than the food we have. Why would you do also, that? It didn't make any sense because you'd stop on a long journey, but you wouldn't be on a long journey at that point because you would no. have just left your house. But we didn't have milkshakes in our house, <laughs> and I'd heard there were milkshakes there, and that was uh, very important. And so I finally broke them down, and they said they'd take me there for my birthday. There's, I mean, I probably don't need to say I'm an only child. I think that's come across. <laughs> and, but my dad was not used to waiting for food. At a re- my dad arrived at the table when the food was there, and when he finished eating, he left the table. The other advantage to eating at home, yeah. if you don't cook. Why? And, and also, he knew what he was going to eat. He didn't have to go in and make some kind of decision as to what he was going to eat. So we went in, sat down, or they, they took maybe three minutes to come over. Already he's furious. He's going, what is going on in this place? This is, this is chaos. He says what he wants. We say what we want. Two minutes later, the food has still not come. And so he's like, we've got to leave. We've got to leave this place. This, this is run by animals. And so he left. He's when I can't. I don't have the time for this. And so that was our experience of eating. But I did go back to Happy Eat, I think, when I was older on my own. It was worth the wait. Can you remember what you had? I imagine I've had a milkshake and a burger. <laughs> I think they did a lot of burgers with pineapples on. Oh, I think there was the nice. era where a pineapple ring was impossibly sophisticated. Pineapple, gammon, baked potato, sour cream and chives. That was practically... That was a continental I'm, meal. I'm hungry now. <laughs> I mean, what's the problem? It really struck a chord because, um, I don't know why, but we went to, on long car journeys, very spoiled because we got to go to the Little Chef, but I always wanted to go to the Happy Eater because of the the playground. And for some reason, I don't know if my parents sort of take it against it in sort of a very arbitrary way, or there was just nothing, no Happy Eaters on the way, or there was one near our house and it wasn't deemed far away enough to go to. So I... I never went to a happy eater. Yes, I remember having a, a birthday party at McDonald's um, when I was young, and part of the birthday party was that they showed you the kitchen. <laughs> and I, I think re- I've been. Did you go one of those? Parties. Well, I remember thinking, "What do I care? <laughs> like, as in, what am I? What am I going to do? Well done, lads. You're doing a heck of a job here. <laughs> I mean, at seven. I had no curiosity about the, the mass production yeah, of, of burgers on that scale. I didn't go, how are you managing to make so many burgers? <laughs> how are you doing it? Take me through, where's the cheese kept? How are you doing the lettuce? I was just going, I just want a... Where's the I just want a little figure. I want a, uh, like a burger and maybe I might get a Coke. Did you even have a special outfit to wear to go in the kitchen, like a hat and a... Think, lab coat. I think maybe, yes. I think we were put in little smocks or something. Some it seemed so strange. Been. It was quite a corporate visit. <laughs> you go, why? Who thought the kids all... Def- it's not like going in the cockpit in an airplane to was keep it? it on brand. <laughs> it, there's something like, why would you... I don't think you'd want to go into a, the kitchen and restaurant a now. a birthday party. You it weren't given bir- a clipboard and you've not signed off on a sort of regional... Maybe I'm confusing safety. this with my time as a junior food inspector. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, you're right. Huge thanks to Richard. Follow him at Richard Iowadi on Twitter and G. Reed Iowadi on top. At a time when it's easy to become overwhelmed with anxiety about very big things, it is both soothing and engaging to read his thorough, funny examination about one very specific thing. And you might be surprised, as I was, to realise that the analysis of rom-com tropes can prompt a lot of questions about the way we live. I'm Daisy Buchanan, and I have been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me, Paperback Chasers. You can find me on Twitter at NotRollerGirl and on Instagram at The Daisy Bee. 
say hello, suggest some guests and watch out for shelfies. Visit our show page, acars.com slash booked, for more information about our guests and a list of the books they've talked about. If you have any other queries about the podcast, you can email us at whybooked at gmail.com. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe, rate us and leave a review. It's great to hear what you think and it helps other people to find the podcast. For now, I leave you with some inspiring words to remind you that great literature can enter your life and change it when you least expect it. In his 2015 book, Life Lessons from the East End, Danny Dyer wrote, Harold Pinter is the major British playwright of the 20th century. If you've ever been on a drama course, you've studied him. If you've any education in theatre at all, then you know who he is. He has his own style that's famous throughout the world. I had no fucking clue who he was when I met him. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.